Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Mike Herring, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon, fellows. My name is Mike Herring, and this afternoon I have the pleasure of spending some time with Michelle Roberts. Michelle, are you there? I am here, Michael. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. As as you no doubt have experienced countless times, flies by when, <laughs> when you're being interviewed, unless you're the interviewee. <laughs> right? So I'm I'm gonna jump right into it so that I can take advantage of every second of your time. Sounds good. Let's go. All right. So the headliner is you are the immediate past executive director of the NBA Players Association. Is that correct? That's correct. NBA. That was going to say, although the acronym should be NBA. Got it. Got it. And so you, you left that position in the fall of 22. And how are you adjusting to your new chapter? I'm rather enjoying it. I'm busier than I thought, but no complaints. I, I imagine you've got a lot of folks competing for your time. Which is good news, <laughs> right? Which is good news, right? I mean, I don't want to. I never wanted to sit idly in a quarter when I retired, quarter unquote retired. Yeah, I do need to do a better job managing my time. But it's nice to be wanted, and people do think I have some valuable contributions to make. Still, no doubt, no doubt. So, you know, I, I enjoyed reading some of your background material, and I've got a feeling I'm going to ask you questions that you've been asked before, not but I'm going to try not to do too much of that. In, in any case, I beg your patience, but let me just start with what's got to be the typical leading question to someone like you. You grew up in the Bronx, is that right? South Bronx. South Bronx, Precisely. sorry. Yeah. yeah, so I'm a native Richmonder, Richmond, Virginia. Gotcha. I don't know anything about New York. I've, I've heard South Bronx referred to in rap songs, right? <laughs> yes. Maybe Cypress Hill, South Bronx, South South Bronx. Is that right? Castle Hill. I'm dating myself. Oh, yeah. In any case, if I've read the materials correctly, you were exposed to the legal system by your mom who took you to court proceedings? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And it sounds ridiculously untrue, but it's the absolute truth. South Bronx, as you might know or imagine, not a wealthy area, quite the contrary. Right. I grew up in the projects, housing projects, right. and there wasn't a lot. I mean, there was no real disposable income, so going to the theater was not an option. Yeah. Um, my mom's hobby, and I've never understood how she came to have this hobby, was to go to the nearby court bill and watch trials. And I was kind of like, a nerdy little kid. I'd much rather hang out with my mom than hang out with like my, my peers. And so I would go with her. And you know, I've always said I had no clue if I had a real clue about what I was watching. But the two of us would spend hours there, especially during uh, the summers when I didn't have school, watching trials. And I fell in love. Fascinating. You know, I, I, I worked the other side of the courtroom when I was in public service. I was a prosecutor for many years, although I did some defense work in private practice. But I remember as a young prosecutor being struck by court watchers. Yep. 
And I, I, no offense, I thought they were the hottest people because I'm thinking, but why is this man, why is this woman sitting here just watching successive trials? I didn't get it. Now, I I remember when I began practicing, people would understandably have the same reaction you just described. And I would say, I'd tell them, well, that's not odd to me because that 20 years ago, that would be my mom. And right next to her would be a little girl. That that would be me, and so yeah. yeah, the court watcher was a phenomenon that that few people were aware of, but I can attest to it personally. Thanks. So this this would be court in the South Bronx in the eighties, seventies, eighties. When is it? And they I'm really old. <laughs> it's in the sixties and seventies, and my uh, but mostly in the seventies. I was born in whenever, but when I was you know, ten or eleven is when I began doing that for my. And and did you watch both civil and criminal cases? Mostly criminal because it, it was, I guess, my mom's cup of tea. I don't know, but some civil. We also, believe it or not, would watch bond hearings. Mm-hmm. New York, New York had night court, and so after five, you would be able to see arraignments until seven or eight at night. Sometimes my mom, after dinner, would take me along again in the summer. And we go watch arraignments. It was it was peculiar, I know, but that's that that was my life. So I, I'm sure this is, if not have has, has been asked of you, it has occurred to you. Do you think your mom was planting a seed, sort of on the down low, that if she exploded you, it might take? You know, I asked her that, and she denied it, but she did say. That when I began to express an interest in being a lawyer, she was quietly thrilled. So again, I, I, she denies it, but she did not discourage it when she realized that I had been bitten by the Yeah, yeah. I did not grow up in the housing projects, but I grew up near some housing projects. And so I, I have some sense of that dynamic. But my real question is, Am I correct to assume that there were probably not a lot of lawyers <laughs> in your social network? Uh, you would be absolutely correct. <laughs> I mean, the closest thing to the law that I was exposed to, my community was exposed to, were police officers. Right. In fact, I'll tell you, Michael, I didn't even meet a lawyer up close and personal that looked like me until my second year of law school. Whoa. So, no, there was no role model that I, that I grew up being able to sort of model yeah. myself. And how did how'd your family react to the news or the suggestion that you might want to, or that you might have an interest in the law? Very supportive, but I will say this. When, the, when it became clear that I wanted to be a lawyer, but I wanted to be a public defender, there was some disappointment, at least from the perspective of my brothers, because they had this vision of me being a very wealthy lawyer and that was going to share the wealth. When they learned that, no, what I want to do is represent poor people in criminal cases, I will be a public defender, that they were somewhat taken aback, but ultimately very proud um, because we all knew what kind of community we came from. We all knew what kind of lawyers were available to us. And so at the yeah. end of the day, um, Obviously, my mom was proud, but my siblings were also. Do you recall how old you were when you first sort of came out with it, that you had an interest in the practice? For example, I remember wrestling with the idea of being a lawyer somewhere around eighth grade 
because of my experience with forensics, you know, public speaking, extemporaneous speaking, and frankly, getting into trouble and trying to argue my way out. <laughs> of it. I remember being in elementary school, Miss Cohen, usual, go around the room, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when I said, I want to be a trial lawyer, I can remember Ms. Cohen saying to herself, but out loud, what? Yeah. So it, it was pretty early on because it, you know, my exposure to that was early. And I never sort of wavered after I said it out loud the first time. So, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty young. Fourth grade. All right. So, all right one, one, one more on this. This is such an interesting beginning <laughs> that, that really sparked your interest because something must have really motivated you or, or gotten your attention? Was it your perception of injustice? Was it what you saw them doing or the art that you saw on display? What was it? I'd say two things. One, I think I referenced earlier having older brothers. I had two older brothers, still do, and they largely ignored me because I was, you know, bothersome younger sister, and as did their friends. But there was one of their friends who was really nice to me. I mean, didn't sort of swish me out of the way. As it turns out, one of the arraignments that I saw with my mom involved this friend. He was being brought in on that bond hearing, and I was horrified because I knew this was someone I both knew and someone who was very nice to me. And I remember seeing him not get bail and thinking that, and again, I was so young, but I was convinced it was because of the quality of his representation. He had a, a court-appointed lawyer. My mom explained to me that he had that lawyer because that's the best he could do. That's when I knew I wanted to be a defense attorney and a, and a public defender. I remember seeing verdicts, and again, just about every defendant looked like me. They were African-American men principally. Yeah. And when somebody was acquitted, watching the, the, the defendant and or his family just break down in, in, in absolute relief, I wanted to be a part of making that happen for people that I thought were, may or may not have been wrongly arrested, but apparently they deserved to be acquitted because they were. So it was that dynamic that I couldn't shake, and I wanted to make sure I could, I could help bring into the lives of people that looked like me and had similar backgrounds. This is the best job I ever had. Yeah. I mean, the, the notion of personal sort of proximity to the cases there's something that I can relate to because, you know, I grew up here and I, I came back to practice here and my second job out of law school was was as a prosecutor. And I remember the epiphany, if you will, sometimes of looking at my docket sheet and seeing a name that that had a vague familiarity to me. Yeah. And then I'd show up in the courtroom and I'd see somebody from middle school. Or, or one time, Michelle, I opened a folder and I saw a picture of a girl I had a raving crush on oh, God. in high school. And she was a homicide victim. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, she'd gotten caught up with, with a Jamaican drug gang and, yeah. and didn't come out the other side. And, and you know, I, there, there was a time that I really wrestled with, again, I'm going to use the same term, the proximity of it. Mm -hmm. Because it just seemed a bit... It was hard for me to distance myself sometime from my background. And again, I, I grew up in a teacher's household. I was lucky, but it was it was sort of like seeing my neighborhood come through the courtroom, you know, yeah. just eerie. No, it, it, was, it was, as much as I enjoyed um, being a public defender, it was emotionally the most taxing 
professional experience I have gone through. Uh, All right. Well, I'm going to tax you a little more for a while because <laughs> I, I want to talk about that. You you went to work uh, at PDS, and I, I know something of PDS. My, my brother's in D.C., and my sister-in-law is, is on the bench, but she's a, a, a PDS alum in mm-hmm. D.C. And I know. We sort of think of those folk as the crusaders, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's real frontline work, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. What, what are your early memories of being a trial lawyer in PDS, at PDS in D.C.? Yeah. Well, you know, the PDS was, at least it believed itself to be the best defender office in the country, and its, its reputation was impeccable. The lawyers that there were... In my view, unique defenders in that, to the extent the stereotype was that public defenders have hundreds of cases and they plead everybody out and they don't really know, they have to walk in and meet their clients for the first time that they have trial. It was the the complete opposite. Uh, This was a band of lawyers that were blessed with having manageable caseloads and who were committed to trying cases as if we were being paid, right? In other words, no client should be of the view that had I had some money, I would have been better represented. And so I met an army of lawyers that worked tirelessly. Um, It it was not unusual to find lawyers in the office on weekends, 10 at night. Um, You lived and breathed your practice. And we tried cases. If we couldn't get an offer that was acceptable to the client or consistent with the evidence, it was understood that we would try these cases and we would try them with every ounce of our of our hearts and souls, so I, it was a lot harder than I anticipated because the expectations were so high. We were very. It was also a very supportive group of people. I didn't have any family at that time. I was in D.C. My family was not in New York. was was still in New York, and so it became the people I worked with together with my clients were the only people I would see twenty four seven. Very supportive. But it was no nonsense. And we had a U.S. attorney's office that had very talented lawyers who loved to test you. So right. it, it was, you know, 12, 10, 12 hour days were sort of par for the course. And it, I mean, that, that actually tough. sounds that sounds like a very healthy training ground. Right. I wouldn't have begun my practice any other way. I mean, I think to the extent I and viewed as a talented trial lawyer or a good trial lawyer, I, I owe it all to my beginnings um, at the public defender service. They made me a great lawyer. Um, they make great lawyers there. They don't allow you to hang out or hang around if you're not. Right. <laughs> so it, I couldn't have started my practice at any, in any better place. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, oftentimes in prosecution, certainly at the state level, which is where I did all of my work, you don't have the benefit of a formal training program. Instead, because of the volume and the pace of it, you were sort of thrown in, if not in the deep end, and you're, you're thrown in right, right in the middle of the pool. And mm-hmm. you're either going to make your way to the deep end by some form of flailing swimming, or you're going to go out the other end and leave. And but I get the sense that at PDS, there there was more formal training and mentoring. Is that right? Yeah, there was. It's in fact you'd start the, your tenure at PDS with a two month training program. That's all you did. Wow. 
you told us you just did training. And then when you got out of training, you everyone had a formal mentor who would be in your courtroom whenever you were, so that you had always felt that you had a lifeline. And you didn't start with homicides, right? I mean, you started with juvenile court and you did that for a year and then you moved up to misdemeanor. So you had a chance to develop your practice and not have someone's liberty be at stake. Right. I mean, I've met lawyers that told me, oh, gosh, I was trying homicides within six months of my practice. Are you kidding? Right. That's, yeah. I think that's misconduct and that's not practice. Correct. And so we were able to develop as lawyers. And, and we always had, again, someone in the courtroom with us. To the extent I was in a homicide in, in a year, I was there watching and supporting a senior lawyer who gave me very little to do other than carry his briefcase, but I was learning. That's right. Able to having my client be represented by someone who wasn't ready, so it, you were able to evolve. And to the extent you know we're a faster learner, then you might be able to to move up. But you weren't, as to use your your analogy, thrust into the deep end and and woke to the client that you know how to swim. Yeah, you know, at at the risk of a, of offending some of our peers, perhaps I often hear folk comment in in some way that. Criminal cases offer uh, good good training opportunities for young lawyers. And on the one hand, I know what they mean. Yeah. That is, you're, you're, you'd be hard-pressed to find more opportunities to go to trial than in criminal practice, either, either bench or jury. But on the other, and somewhat uh, to the point that I, I think you were making, it, it borders on being unethical, I think, to essentially place someone's liberty in the hands of an inexperienced criminal trial lawyer who's struggling to manage a bloated load of cases, right? I mean, the lawyer gets training almost at the expense of the person's due process and liberty. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I appreciate that in some jurisdictions, the public defender are choice. I mean, PDS in D.C. wasn't remains one of the better funded public defender organizations. Caseloads are deliberately kept at a manageable rate. There is a sense of wanting the agency to run much like a private law firm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have the luxury of having lawyers develop. Other jurisdictions don't can funds. And so, you know, they've got a criminal indigent population that needs lawyers. And if you don't have enough money or enough lawyers to be able to allow for less experienced lawyers to grow, then I guess something is better than nothing is a mentality that reigns. But it really is scary to hear about a case that a defendant was represented by someone who had never tried a homicide um, and was only two or three years out of law school, if, if even that. Um, but that's in many ways the norm in many jurisdictions. So a little lighter. I imagine early on there were things about the way your mentor or other more seasoned lawyers, things about the way they, they tried their cases that, that made an impression on you. Are there one or two that you remember years later, one or two techniques, uh, attributes, what have you, that, that shaped your development as a trial lawyer? My, my absolute mentor, um, who just recently passed away, uh, was Charles Ogletree. He was and remains the most talented trial lawyer I've ever seen in my life. And what distinguished him immediately on my meeting him and watching him perform in court was 
he didn't sound like a lawyer, right? I mean, he, he sounded like someone who was having a conversation with a witness during cross-examination. He sounded like someone who was having a conversation with a jury during opening statements and closing arguments. He was not using $5 words. He never read anything and sort of lost contact with the fact finder. And he was uber prepared. So I understood. And he once described me in a way that, that I think he must have overheard me describe him. Charles, we called him Tree. Tree was in many ways the 13th juror and that he approached the litigation, the matter, as a fact finder who asking questions and looking for answers that would make sense to someone who's trying to identify what, what really happened. I mean, he, I think jurors loved him because they, they could tell he respected them. Yeah. He, and he never, ever, ever in my presence suggested that a jury got something wrong because they were inadequate, stupid, it, it, and even if he believed that, he didn't say that. And, and many times when he and I would comment on what worked and what didn't work, it was because he insisted that we focus on what a juror is going to find reasonable, what's going to make sense, yeah. what do they want to know, What how, are we insulting their intelligence. I continue to glory when people say to me, you're not, you're not the typical lawyer, are you? I find that a compliment because I think that there's a perception of lawyers as being obstinate, condescending and frankly out of touch in a way that in a way that I, I think represents or reflects their their success or lack thereof. And so I always wanted to have it be the case that the jury did not view me as predictable or or, or a typical lawyer. It helped that I was a black woman. So <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. There were there were a whole lot of us, but at the end of the day I thought that Anything that was reflected, sort of, I, I hear you, I appreciate you, and, and, and I didn't ever try to be disingenuous was the way to be successful. And worked for me. Every lawyer that I, that I saw whose work I admired had, had that same trait. They seemed to appreciate that the, the most important person in the courtroom, apart from the client. Yeah. You know, th- this idea of, of, of it helping that you were a black woman really struck a, a nerve with me. And I'm, and here's why. Sometimes tried to step back and, and observe myself mm-hmm. in the well of the courtroom. And, and on my better days, I'm able to settle down and, and perhaps uh, emulate tree to a, to a degree, if, if I'm using mm-hmm. uh, his nickname correctly. Yeah, yeah. But there were other days that I'm sure I hit what I call my switch. That is... I felt like perhaps because I was maybe the only African-American on this side of the well of, of, of the courtroom mm-hmm. that I needed to be just as sharp. Mm-hmm. My edge needed to be just as hard or mm-hmm. harder. Did it? And, and, and perhaps in my not so subtle way to prove myself, I did my, you know, the interest that I represented a disservice, right? Because mm-hmm. I was trying to outperform my peers, perhaps my white peers, never thought of that. When I was a young girl lawyer, a brand new lawyer, I, I was, I had to figure out a way to deal with the disrespect. And sometimes it was subtle, sometimes it wasn't, that some of my white peers showed me because they didn't take seriously the fact that I was a lawyer. And, and I spent, I think, too much energy trying to 
in some way convince them or demonstrate to them that I was as good as they were. Mm -hmm. And I stopped being distracted by that because at the end of the day, it occurred to me, they don't decide guilt or innocence. They've already decided, right? Mm -hmm. These 12 people, these 13, 14, whatever, people in the box are the ones I have to impress. For example, if I'm cross-examining an expert, it may be that I need to be a little more lawyerly to demonstrate you know, the quality of my education and my ability to go toe-to-toe with this expert. So I might have a different persona then. But at the end of the day, and that was only to make sure that the jury understood that I could take this expert on, notwithstanding that he or she had more experience in this space than I. Right. At the end of the day, I, I stopped caring about, even to some extent, the judges, because I had some difficult judges that I thought were treating me poorly because I was a woman or because I was black or both. But at the end of the day, I, I really just tried to stay as focused as I could on that jury. And if they were comfortable with me and found me credible, then, then that's pretty much all I cared about. And the way I thought they would find me credible was for me to be genuine. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, so I hear you. And, and I think it's something that, I hate the term, but this imposter syndrome is something that we all struggle with who are jokes, quote unquote, different. Yeah. But I think as a jury trial lawyer, it can be distracting. And I yeah. tried very hard to, to push back, push back against it. I agree. So let, w- one more thought on on Mr. Ogletree, this mm-hmm. notion of being a 13th juror. Mm-hmm. Now, I can understand how he might employ that phenomenon to prep, right? To mm-hmm. think of issues that, that, that might be dispositive or, or seminal to the outcome. But do you ever recall an occasion, and this may have been his MO for all I know, of him sharing with the jury that he liked to think of himself as the thir- the 13th juror. Because on one hand, I can imagine that, that some people, some judges even, might p- give him some pushback. On the other, if he pulled it off, then now he's sold himself as not just the lawyer with infinite credibility, but he's invested himself in the decision-making and sold the jurors that they should trust him as a consultant for the decision-making process. Does that make sense? To the extent the questions, the question asks whether you know, one communicates as a thir- 13th juror your position and yet your personal investment in the, in the outcome, in my view, a jury were to conclude that you really don't have any vested interest in the outcome. And I know you're not supposed to communicate that to the jury. It's supposed to, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be clinical. But I think at the end of the day, if I ever communicated to a jury that I didn't really have a, a dog in this hunt, that would be that would be disturbing. I mean, I wanted jurors to believe, and I know I didn't have to, and I would say that sometimes to a jury, look, you don't have, it's my opinion, and the, the, the court has told you, the opinion of counsel is completely irrelevant, and if you're judging the evidence, and I would say that, but, I, but I, I'm not going to lie, I wanted them to believe that I believe, and that I would be emotionally crushed, if not intellectually disappointed. I don't say jurors are not lawyers. Sometimes they are, and I try really hard to keep them off my jury. But the jurors are people, and they, at the end of the day, have an impression of the evidence, have an impression of the witnesses. They weren't there. And so to the extent they did it, that you as a trial lawyer have gained a substantial amount of credibility, they may not say out loud, well, you know, I don't know, but this Robert seems to be pretty confident that her client's not guilty, so I'm going to vote with her. I'm sure no one ever said that out loud or even maybe to themselves. 
But to the extent that you know, you've got a case where either verdict would make sense on the record, having you know, showing some personal conviction to your case can't hurt. And I frankly always thought that if I failed to do that, then I was not quite frankly doing my job. Yeah. Yeah, it's not enough to summarize the evidence, right? I mean, no. you've got to make the jury understand why your interpretation of the evidence is the right one. Mm -hmm. And no one is inclined to believe something which intuitively offends them. If I think I've got it right, what I'm asserting is the more consistent with reality of version of events, then I shouldn't have any difficulty communicating, without saying, but communicating to the, to the jurors that this is how I strongly believe it. This is not, I'm not simply being paid to do that. In fact, in fact, Michael, and I'll say this and shut up. One of the things that, I, that would get my goat up, and on the few times it was said, was when, uh, especially in my criminal practice, was when a prosecutor would say, well, she's paid to say that. That objection was always sustained, and, and, and the prosecutor always you know, seriously admonished, but it would personally offend me that someone would say that and, and then suggest that to a jury. Because if the jury believed that, then that's it. My credibility is completely, completely shot. So you, you went on to become the manager of the trial division. Is that right? And, and, mm -hmm. Is that correct? So, yeah, chief of the trial division, yeah. Chief of the trial division. And while that may not be perfectly analogous to herding cats, it probably wasn't <laughs> far off, right? To the extent you had to manage what I imagine to be a bunch of well-intended type A's. Am I right so far? Oh, you could not be more right. <laughs> you have wonderful stints at Skadden, and I see some, some other stopping points. Mm -hmm. But eventually, you, you make your way to the NBP, Crazy. where I would imagine you come across the mother of all type A's. <laughs> Absolutely true. Right. That's all right. That's enough, though. Yeah. So here we go. So how did you parlay your management of D.C. public defender crusaders? How did you parlay that skill into managing the egos, the agendas, picket for the NBPA? Well, you know, the better analogy for me is you're right about the egos and hold that deservedly so. I mean, these were, I represent, these are men who could pat themselves on the back, not simply because of their, their athletic skills, but because there are 450 jobs in the NBA. And if you got one, you know what you had to do to get it. And you know what you have to do to keep it. So these are men that understand that they are, they have made their own personal history. Especially trial lawyers, we are, well, I guess all lawyers, we are trusted advisors, right? We don't tell our clients what to do. We advise them, and they, to the extent that they believe that we have any credibility and expertise, then they will more often than not go along or accept the advice and follow it. I've there are some lawyers who think otherwise. I know that, and I think that they're absolutely wrong. Who believe that they can go to your client and say, "Trust me, this is what you should do, and this mm -hmm. is what I'm directing you." I, I, I would not be a good client if my lawyer said that to me. And so I've always understood that I work for a client. And that, that most of the time, if I advised them to do to take a certain position, they would. Um, but if they didn't, I never I was of the view that that's a bad client. That's a man or woman, that's a company, whatever, that, that has made a decision, notwithstanding my, my advice that they do otherwise. That's how I viewed the, the, the players that I worked for. 
They weren't technically clients. They were my bosses. But a client, in many ways, is your boss because if they don't like the way you represent them, you're fired. And so I understood that these were men that probably didn't have a lot of experience dealing with a woman in this in, in a position of authority other than their moms. And so there was a credibility that I had to establish. I used to liken that to my public defender days when I'd walk in and I'd say, hi, I'm your lawyer. And I could see on the face of the client, man, I wish I had some money because I got this lawyer, probably not a real lawyer, because if she was a real lawyer, she wouldn't be a public defender. So I understood the concept of having to win over and gain credibility with the client. And then I never stopped wavering from the fact that, that I'm a trusted advisor, period. I, I'm not running the union. I am managing the union on behalf of the men the union is. And it worked out fine. And there were some bumps and bumps. And I had to deal with, with young people, people who were far younger than me, who would on occasion be somewhat demanding in ways. That, that at the beginning I thought was disrespectful. But at the end of the day, you know, once we sort of finished dancing around for a while, I found it easier and easier. I don't know that you need to be a lawyer to to do that work, but for me, being a lawyer ended up being an asset that I found quite useful yeah. in my job. Did, did you ever find that you were having to make the case to your clients, the players, in the way that you had to make the case to a jury? I frequently, Michael, would, we would have either team meetings or we would have you know, meetings of um, multiple teams. And I frequently, I didn't say it out loud to anyone else, but I would address them in many ways, the same way I would do an opening statement or a closing argument. There were issues, yeah, that there was an initial resistance to, I, and I think I can say this out loud, during COVID, when we stopped playing, there was an understandable reluctance among the players to play. I mean, there was no, remember, there was no vaccine then. The guys had already gone home. We stopped playing in March. Everybody went back to their homes. And then we had the question of whether or not we were going to resume playing in July. Uh, I knew that uh, most of my players did not want to resume, so, for valid reasons, some of them because... They were afraid to, to leave their families, some because they lost family members in those months, others because they thought, I don't care, I made enough money, I don't mind losing a little bit more this year. I mean, it, there was, but there was a very strong consensus that, at that time minority of players who didn't want to sustain the financial loss. I had a view. I had a view that we had come up with a, a scenario which was safe, that we should try, and I wanted them to, that was going to be my advice. We had, I think, four or five large Zoom at that time, new with Zoom meetings, and I was giving closing arguments. And I felt like I was giving closing arguments. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was something I would have been comfortable or even successful at if I'd not had had the training that I had in addressing large audiences of sometimes very skeptical people. Mm -hmm. We we call them juries. (laughs) And so... Yeah, that that skill set did prove, prove very helpful. Yeah. So when when you were at PDS and then later when you were in private practice at Aiken and, and then Skadden, if I'm correct, correct, I imagine you you tried cases with co-counsel. Is that right? Certainly mm-hmm. at the firms, I imagine, you know, the matters were, were well staffed. Now, when you're with the union, were you often 
flying solo or did you have wingmen and women? Well, when I first got there, the union was incredibly small. And frankly, it was primarily because there weren't a whole lot of services being provided. So, you know, the staff was represented with the quality of work that was being provided. I very quickly, and I promised when I was applying for the position, I planned to sort of create a team um, because we wanted to do more, so we need to have more bodies. So for a while, I had a very small team, but by the time I left, I think we tripled the size of the of the PA. And I'd like to think that the senior management team that I had put in place were both very competent men and women, but so smart that I felt more than comfortable having us sort of figure out collectively how we would move in certain spaces. Not as a public defender, because we'd have, we didn't have the luxury of having six or seven lawyers assigned to a matter. But when I was when I was Aiken and Scadden and I was representing Fortune 100 companies, and the trial teams would be sometimes a number of 20, 25 lawyers. And so I was accustomed to working that way with large teams of, of, of good, smart people who believed in being collaborative. And that's what I tried to replicate when I got to the Players Association. Now, we, we've talked about sort of managing relationships with type A's. Let's do a bit of a, a sidestep on that. How about trying cases with other roosters, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's have that laugh. So how did you do that? You know, whether at PDS or later at Skadden or, at, or Aiken or, or with the union, how did you work with how did you manage the egos, the skill set, right? Because you have to leverage and, and draw out of people their value add. How'd you pull that off? Well, it would be more of a challenge because I was doing some class action litigation. And so those clients would typically bring in two or three firms. And, and, and that would be a little bit more challenging because I wouldn't be the only partner or one of only one, of only one or two partners that was part of the team there might be six partners and from three different law firms. And everyone thought that he or she was the best trial lawyer on the planet. And so if I knew the lawyers, then that would be easier. But many times I met these lawyers for the first time as the client was building the team. So that, that, and that was a challenge. I mean, the good news is that I would be brought in specifically because of my trial skills. There were some lawyers who were brought in because they were experts they'd be part of the team because they were experts in that subject matter. It's a medical matter. It's a, it's a, it's a pharmaceutical case. So someone who was experienced process or some of the pharma experts would be brought in to do that expert. So we would try to figure out what we could collectively agree was our best superpower. Yeah. And then either agree that Michelle's going to be in this aspect of the case or not agree. And then the client would have to make the call which was always uncomfortable, but it just depended. I mean, good lawyers, I found, are, are willing to sacrifice their egos for the verdict. I mean, at the end of the day, we all want to do what's best for the client, and that is to win. And I you know, thankfully can think of only a handful of that many lawyers that, that I just came to blows with who just did not find him or herself able to sit down and have us agree on how the case should be divided. But you're right. You know, I think trial lawyers, especially, have huge egos, and if the more successful they are, <laughs> the larger the ego. But you know, if you have enough time, and these are large enough cases, so you do have enough time, then you can probably work it out. 
And if you don't, and those, again, most few occasions when we didn't, we just say to the client, look, he thinks he should do this. I frankly think I'm better at it, better situated to do it, given that this, this particular witness, I think it's a better idea. And then the client would make the call. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it, that it, makes it, could sense. Be it could be challenging. You told me about the impression that acquittals had on the relaunch. Now, I imagine doing work in the in, at PDA, you suffered your fair share of loss. What's your most vivid memory of a crushing loss, and how did you deal with it? Well, it, yeah, you can't try cases and win them all. That's right. Um, and so I, I was incredibly successful in winning many more than, than, than most, but I, I didn't win them all. The one case, I was absolutely not guilty, but I had a phenomenally experienced opponent on the other side, um, and I had a horrific judge. And the jury, it was a, a multiple felony case involving allegations of rape and kidnapping. And the jury largely acquitted, but they, I think, as, a, as an homage to the prosecutor, it was really very good, much more experienced than I at that time found him guilty of aiding and abetting carnal knowledge under a theory of, of the client admitted that he gave the, the person who presumably committed the rape a ride to the victim's hole. And, mm -hmm. and on, on that theory, they convicted him. And, I, and later the jurors said, well, he's just going to be given probation, right? Well, they didn't understand mm -hmm. this judge was not going to do that. And when the minute they, they came back and said guilty on that count, I, I collapsed. Didn't faint, but I I was standing with the man. You had to stand. The client standing. You're standing. The jury is delivering the verdict, and that was the last count that they read. And I just sank, you know, sank to the chair. And I yeah, I, I call it buckling. Yeah, that there you go. That's that's a better. And I, I and I because I knew immediately he was going to go to prison. And the fact that the, the judge gave him a six year prison sentence it was it was absolutely outrageous. It was a kid that had no prior record. I mean, all the all the horribles that. That's attorneys will share over a beer. And it was earlier in my career, but it was a feeling that I said I never want to replicate. Of course, it, it was replicated because I can't, you can't win mm -hmm. the ball, but I've never forgotten how badly that felt. And so when I would win, some lawyers would want to have a party and celebrate and laugh. I was, it was to me, it was just relief that I never had to feel that way again. Yeah. And, but I, you know, the, the good news is it, it made me even more determined never to feel that way again. And so, you know, I worked until I couldn't stand. That's yeah. what I, I frankly stopped doing criminal cases because I, it was just taking too much energy. Share with our audience what you think you did tactically that led to one of your more memorable victories. You know, it's funny because the cases where I'm most happy I won were cases where, you know, I, the ace, and this is, this will sound somewhat. It, not everybody I represented was innocent. In fact, <laughs> right? I mean, let, I'll just say it. But my my laughter. I mean, not everybody was innocent, and not everyone who was acquitted was innocent. But that was, right. as you know, Michael, that's not the yeah. point, right? Right, right, right. But to, the the cases that I was most proud that I won were cases where I was convinced. And I'm the, I'm a cynical, and I've been around the block. But, but those were cases where I was convinced the client was innocent. And there was one case, it's a criminal case, because those are the ones that you're most passionate about, at least I was, with a client who was the stupidest human being I'd ever met. 
but as sweet as he could be and was incredibly talented. He had a wonderful voice and he was convinced by some not very nice people in his neighborhood to carry some a very large quantity of narcotics. And he was he was arrested and charged in the federal court. And you know, this is when you had these guidelines that were not but I think what I did that worked, it's something I would not have done, but I but I knew that they could the jury couldn't see what I saw in this in this young man without hearing from me. Believe me, in all the cases I've tried, I have been firmly opposed to clients testifying and if I could avoid it, putting on an affirmative defense. I think it does shift the burden. I'm a defense attorney. But I put him on with all of his warts and knowing that he was not going to do a great job, but I knew that they could see him. And mm-hmm. and, and so he, you know, he answered questions. We, you know, we, we practically prepared. I had an overzealous prosecutor who knew that he was limited and rather than appreciate that he was going to create sympathy, went after this kid. And I watched this jury watching the cross-examination. Mm. I watched them in their minds say, we're sending this young man. It's sometimes what you'd have to do as a trial lawyer is, you know, obviously your experience and your instincts you should follow. Um, but sometimes you have to be willing to take a risk. Yeah. Because while preparation is critical, some things on occasion will just have to be, it's got to say, I, I think this is going to make a difference. That helped me a lot. I w- did learn to take chances. Most times, if I think just about every time, it paid off. And that, that that's a lesson you have to get old to tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I, I love that story. Although I have to say, I thought you were going to tell me you figured out a way to have him sing. <laughs> you know, no, no, yeah, right. Last one for the day, I promise, because I'm, I'm having way too much fun. The uh, I note from your your background materials that you you spend some time at Harvard with as part of its adjunct faculty. Yeah, and when students learn your background, I'm sure there are some, if not all, who say to you some version of. I'd love to do what you did. I, I love your trajectory. You know, early trial work, mid-career trial practice, and then you you sort of turn the page and, and do something else. Mm-hmm. What, what advice do you give younger, soon-to-be lawyers on how to put themselves in positions to be trial lawyers? Because that's getting harder and harder. I tell lawyers that why be trial lawyers, that you're right, that you, there are different ways to get there. There's not one path. I would, there are people I've, who have said to me, I would never be a prosecutor. And I've said, okay, but if you don't want to be a prosecutor, that's fine. But if you want to tr- learn how to try cases, one of the ways to tune that is to be able to become, become a prosecutor. There are lawyers that I've met in, you know, the Scam and Aiken who said, oh, I'd love to be a trial lawyer, but I'm, like, I'm at this law firm. I'd say, well, no, that's fine. There are things you can learn here, but you're probably going to live to be 60. If you're lucky, you'll have time to do that. There, there, there are all sorts of skills that we need to bring into the courtroom that we don't learn necessarily at the same place at the same time. Mm-hmm. So appreciate that. Unlike uh, a professional basketball player, whose professional life is is limited, that shelf life is is, is a given. As a lawyer, you can go on until you can't go on no more. You can even be a lawyer in a wheelchair. It, 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 the beauty of being a lawyer is that you are your own limitation. And so don't weep that because of your student loans, you can't get into a courtroom or, or get to have a position in a, in a law office that allows you to get into a court for a while. You're going to be around for a while. 
just make sure that wherever you are, you're figuring out ways to, to learn the law, to talk to lawyers. And just like my mom taught me, you can watch lawyering for free. So go down to your local court, court building on your lunch hour and watch. It's free and it's invaluable. Court watching is not just for court watchers. It's for aspiring lawyers, too. I love it. Well, I thank you is the, the, the short-winded way of saying this was an absolute blast. And I'm, I'm <laughs> sure that the fellows will join me in thanking you for your time. We could obviously spend it, or at least I could spend another hour easily chatting with you, but I know you've got more interesting things to do with your day. <laughs> I hope our paths cross in person at some point. And, and again, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. We shall meet again. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every episode.